Welcome to the One Player Podcast, the show on solitaire board gaming. I'm your host Albert, and this is episode 60. The Solitaire Print and Play Design Contest. 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 Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the podcast. This is, as I promised before, a special edition. This is an interview or discussion with uh, Chris Hansen and Todd Sanders on the One Player Print and Play Design Contest for 2014. Um, we had a live chat on, on uh, Google Hangouts. Uh, a few people got to watch. And now I am going to also, it is also available as a video, which you could go watch on YouTube, or you could just listen to this. Unfortunately, I am an amateur at this. The quality is not as good as it could have been. We had a few technical difficulties, and and you will get to enjoy those too, unfortunately. Let's go on with the show. It's a long one. This is a live broadcast. Hi, welcome to the One Player Podcast. This is a special edition live broadcast about the Solitaire Print and Play Design Contest. And uh, today I have Todd Sanders, a game designer. Hello. Solitaire games and print and play games. And Chris Hansen, which is hosting the contest, which right now he can't speak to us, but we can see him. He could wave, I think. Yep, he could wave. Uh, so we are still working out some audio glitches. Um... Oh, now, Chris. Chris. Can you guys hear me now? Yes. Yes. All right. Well, we'll go with the phone today. Okay. Yeah, and you're the one that's you're the one that's the echo loop. I'm sorry about that. That's all right. That's all right. We'll figure out. I never pay attention to myself. So yeah, today we're talking about the solitaire print and play design contest. I don't know what to say about it. Chris, do you want to tell us about this year's contest? Yeah, so this is the fourth year we're doing it. Um, it's got a lot of participation this year, and it's it's basically it's a Board Game Geek hosted contest, uh, not affiliated with Board Game Geek at all, just hosted on their website. Um, that has any any user of Board Game Geek that wants to submit a game is welcome to come in, and uh, you know any solitaire game is welcome. There's no theme restrictions or anything like that. It's just it's a contest, you know, kind of zeroed in on um, on solitaire print-and-play games. All right. Um, and you said this is the fourth year of it? Yeah. So every year it's getting better. Yeah, I think every year it's attracted a little more participation. The, uh, the second year we did it, we had the most games that were entered, um, but it that year, we didn't have any restriction on how many games a person could enter, and so I think some people right. entered three or four games, and I got a lot of feedback that year that people were having trouble getting through every game that was entered or you know, even looking at every game. I think it was 75 games or something. Yeah. So we've limited it to one game per designer this year, and you know that way you're able to just look at, you know, it's a lot easier to look through all the games and get a lot more played than when there's 75 out there, that's, that's tough to get through. <laughs> wow, okay. And Todd, you've been designing games. For the, have you been in the contest for the year? Since the uh, beginning, yes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry? What is that like? I mean, is, it, is it a fun thing, experience person? Oh, yes, this is actually, I, I'm 
I've been thinking of swearing off most of the other contests, except for this one. Um, definitely, we need more solo games out there, and uh, the publishing world is proving that to be so as well, since more and more games are coming with solo options with them. Um, and it's definitely the, my favorite contest out of all of them. Cool, okay. Just so you know, Chris, I muted you while Todd was talking to see if that helped with the echo. It, it did. I don't think I'm going to be able to do that all the time. It was an experiment. Yep. Um, okay, so I came up with a bunch of scripted uh, things to talk about, and I guess we'll go through that, unless anybody wants to say anything else first. Uh, I just want to say thanks to Chris for doing this every year. It's um, proven to be more and more work for him, I think, as the years have gone by. But it's uh, really, I think it's the contest that all the other ones are modeled after. I know the two-player contest has adopted a lot of the rules. And uh, this year was the first for a micro-game contest that we pointed that uh, organizer to Chris's uh, very long and intricate list of um, rules and regulations and things about the contest. Not that the rules are all that strict, but he lays everything out very, very cleanly and carefully. And um, there's been some good debates about sizes of games and how we typically describe them as being small, medium, and large um, component-wise. And uh, it always engenders a lot of conversation on that topic. So... Okay. Are are these just any of them also solitaire, or are they all multiplayer? Or I guess depends. I I would say maybe ninety five percent of them are solitaire. I mean, we see on occasion a solitaire games we play two players as well, but everyone really kind of holds to the solitaire aspect of it. Um, and the entries get stronger every year because we sort of build on previous years. You know, the uh, last year's winner, the Maquis. Um, there are a lot of interesting mechanics there that I think a lot of people are looking at this year. I know my first couple of years doing kind of an aggregate AI mechanic to try to um, simulate a real-time opponent. Um, some other people have adopted some of those mechanics. So it's it's a nice contest in that we build and we learn every year more about how to do this better and better and make the game stronger and stronger. Okay. Um I guess let's let's do some um, housekeeping stuff first. The contest, what are what are the dates and the restrictions and that sort of thing for the contest? If somebody wants to enter, I think you have to unmute. Uh, let's see, I don't hear. You. Do I, I thought I, Chris, you there? Oh, what did I do? Now you're not even there at all. Okay, I don't have you muted, but I've got your volume down. I've got your volume down. There we go. There he goes. There he goes. Okay, can you can you hear me? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so the contest. Um, I can't believe I'm I've forgotten <laughs> the the dates. Um, That's, I know it's got about a month to go. Yeah. Okay. So I I knew it was in August. It was August 9th is the entry deadline. So we've got a little more than a month for any games to come in. And then the actual, the voting deadline is September 13th. So we're going about halfway through September, give everyone six weeks to play the games. Uh, and during that time, after the voting deadline has passed, um, you know, you, designers can certainly get a lot of feedback. Um, I, I've provided a little window for typo correction, things like that, that, you know, just drive people crazy when they're like, oh, man, I got to misspell the word in the rule book. Um, but what we've done is said after the voting deadline has passed, you can't make any big component changes, 
or you know big rule changes so that way everyone can print out the games without having to worry about printing them again at least through the voting period and I think it gives everyone a fair you know a fair deadline that you can't keep improving forever so there's this deadline uh-huh. and then after that everyone can play the games and then we have a big vote about halfway through September okay so the first deadline so in, August first deadline in August if um, yeah. if, um, if, if, if I submit if, a game I can still some changes, still changes at that point at that point after August 9th, there's a one-week period, I think it's about one week, where we allow typo correction and minor minor edits. Um, last year, the, the winner of the contest um, had a component that was wrong, and it was driving the designer crazy, but we'd really stipulated the rule, no further edits. So this year, we, we gave a little buffer period that if you find some typos and stuff, you can correct those, but... Um, you know, a- after that is done, then yeah, it's no no further edits until the voting is done. And to clarify, and to clarify, you could start entering could start today, entry. for example, if I have something. I don't have to wait till August ninth. No, August ninth is just the deadline. There are already, I think, about twenty two games that have been entered into the contest, and some of them you can go download and print and assemble and play right now, and then others are still ideas. You know, maybe the designer has a play test that he hasn't put out there yet or, or just an idea in the designer's head. But, um, you know, there's 22 games that have been entered in various degrees of completeness. In, in general, in general it's, it's encouraged that the, games, that the are, games are started to be designed this year, designed this year or at least if it's something a little more intricate that has not been in a previous contest, uh, just to keep it within this, this uh, you know, time frame. So you can't be working on a game for five years and then enter it this year. Um, um. Yeah, and, and that time limit is, uh, you know, obviously someone could be thinking about a game for five years. The time limit that we have is anything in 2014 is okay, but if you were getting playtesting on the Internet or if you put the game out on Board Game Geek in 2012 or, or you know, before 2014, then the contest wouldn't, uh, you know, the, the game wouldn't be allowed in the contest because we're not taking entries from, you know, existing games. Okay. Um, besides um, the restrictions of the dates and the restrictions of, well, yeah, the dates when it was designed, are there any other restrictions that you should be aware of? I mean, the game's playable. You said it doesn't have to be strictly solitaire. to keep in mind? No, in fact, I think we've had a few games in the past that have been multiplayer. Typically, those tend to be cooperative. Uh, the first year of the contest, we had Horror Island, which I think is a one-to-four player game, but definitely geared toward solitaire play. Um, but I know that there's some games that can support multiple players, but uh, typically all of the games are solitaire designed specifically. And materials, it's encouraged materials to not encouraged do anything, not anything, too, do anything too, too exotic. You know, it's meeples, it's cubes, it's dice, things around the house. Um, I mean, you're, you're, you're welcome to do anything you want, but I do warn people that, you know, if you have components that are difficult to cut, because this is a print-and-play, you know, people are going to be making these at home. If it's difficult to cut or you've got, you know, your game requires a 1,000 cubes or something that's going to be difficult for people to find, you know, I just warn you, yeah, you can enter the game, but people might not play it as much as something that is easy to assemble and just requires dice and a few cubes, things that most gamers would have around the house. Yeah, that makes sense. That definitely makes sense. 
Um, how do you enter how the contest? How do you enter the contest? So on the first post of the contest thread on BoardGameGeek, I have some instructions. I set out a, a sample of what an entry would look like. So there's a, a new forum this year on BoardGameGeek, and I think it was made partially because of this contest and the two-player contest. There were so many entries clogging up the regular game design forum um, that we there's a special forum now for contest games. And that's linked in the in the contest thread so that it's easy to find. Um, I have an example of what a, uh, an entry thread would look like. So every game that's requ- um, going to be entered in the contest would have an entry thread associated with it. And it just has a little bit of information about the game, um, what kind of theme, what's the story of the game, a little description of how it plays, um, a, a description of the components, and then a picture of the game. And that's that's really all there is to it. So the, the instructions are are in there and should be nice and simple. And then I'm active on that thread and help answer questions whenever they come up too. But I think we've got it refined now that people can follow and make the, that entry thread. Um, the first year or two, I had to answer a lot of questions, and this year I don't think that I've had only one. Are a lot of the people entered in the contest, uh, have they already entered in the past? Yeah, we have a few people that this is their first year that have entered, but um, there's a few others like Todd who have been with us every year of the contest, and and it's fun this year to see these faces that um, some of them I don't see a lot on BGG outside of the contest, so every year it feels like, oh, there's you know there's this group of friends again almost felt like a little reunion this year, seeing people come in. Uh, but we also have a couple people who this is their first contest, and that's really exciting too. Like, I, I feel like this is becoming a little uh, community, uh, you know, a yep. subset of yep. maybe the print-and-play community, but everyone on the thread's really friendly. There's so much play, you know. Even though this is a contest and you're competing with these other designers, the people are going out and helping the other designers, playing the games, providing feedback. You know, the goal of this, I think for most people, really is to get some great solitaire games released. And winning the contest is probably a, a distant second to that. So it's, it's an incredibly friendly contest, and I love it that way. I'll also say that, also say that uh, unlike, uh, other contests, unlike other contests, because this one, because is, this solo, one is solo, you don't need to have other players, players playtest. Play so everybody, we get a lot more playtesting because one person can just print the game and play it, rather than you know finding two to four friends and spending time and all this. So we actually get a, a greater kind of feedback level. Yeah, it could be hard to wrangle people into doing playtesting with you. I, I found the same thing. I also would say that the returning people I see rules are stronger every year. Artwork stronger every year, game theme mechanics are stronger every year. That people are learning and building on their previous work, and so uh, you know, I would say encourage all the new people. Maybe this is their first year; they feel a little daunted. Stick with it because every year is going to get better for everybody. We're getting stronger games. I mean, last year I can't say enough good things about Maquis. That game is a out of the box, strong solitaire Euro. Great theme, great artwork. Uh, it's been already redesigned, the artwork by Ilya. Just fabulous uh, work on it. I think it was Ilya. It was not Carthinian, but yeah, I think it was Ilya. 
And you know, it's just was pretty good to begin with, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. By the way, we do have two viewers now. We're talking about being a friendly community. So, hello, viewers. Uh, welcome aboard. I know one of you has been here a little while. There, you can ask questions somehow. I don't know how. We might even see your questions. I don't know if there's a chat. I think, I think, yeah, you join the group chat. Uh, can anybody just join it? I would guess so. Oh, I've got my question and answer show disabled. I have no idea how I did that. Well, you can also, um, can also Twitter, 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 Twitter post me if you're on Twitter. It's at Lack River, L-A-C-K-R-I-V-E-R. And I can follow the feed and relay questions. Okay. That will work. Um, let's see. Let's go on to the next section. So... Let me see. The next thing I want to cover is tips for posting a contest for posting entry. A contest um, um, how soon is too soon to post an entry? I mean, I'm, I'm designing a game. Do I, do I want to wait till I've got a pretty good idea? Should I just post it as soon as I think I want to be in the contest? I have no idea what I'm doing. What's you know, What do you recommend? So that really varies by designer. There's some designers who jump out there um, early on in the process and say, here's what I'm thinking about, and they describe kind of a general sense of the rules. And sometimes they can get a lot of feedback and do refining early on in the process. Other designers will um, re release a game once the components are ready, and then you know, maybe you get better feedback because people can actually play the game. Um, uh -huh. It really seems to vary by you know the personal preference. There's no there's no rules on that. Uh, I actually have a game in the contest this year, and I've posted it in my early brainstorming phase. I'm, I'm making playtest components for myself now, but I haven't released them out to the public yet. So there, there's no rule on that, and it just depends on what you want to do and and where you're comfortable sharing your ideas. Right. Whereas like Jack Neal like has Jack an 18xx train game. Um, that he had the rules and everything written, had the first version, and over the last two weeks or so, I'd say probably six, seven people played it. He's changed the rules. He's changed the artwork. He's made it better. He's simplified it. So he's uh, really benefiting from getting out there early. Well, he, yeah, I didn't know there was an 18x game. I've always wanted to play one. I know I haven't yet. So maybe this will be the one I finally get to try out. Yeah, it looks very good. I, I think um, in general you get better feedback with components released because then people can actually play the game rather than read your abstraction about it. Uh -huh. okay. And actually, on that note, I'm going to state something that I state every year of the contest because I, I mean I'm known at BGG for my artwork, uh, and there's a few other Simon's work, and a few other people are really great at the art side, and that seems to daunt a lot of people that you know that they've done in PowerPoint, they have just black and white. You know, don't worry about the artwork. Yes, we judge book by, books by covers. Yes, the artwork does draw people in the game. But for people like me, I'm going to read your rules. If your game is solid, I may go and redesign it, the artwork. If I feel interested in doing that, I may do that for Jack's game because I'm interested in playing his 18xx game. So don't at all, if you're new to the contest, feel daunted by some of us who are professional graphic designers, professional artists. Um, yes, we have a slight advantage in that, but comes down to it, your game is going to be, if it's strong, it's going to shine through, I think, no matter what. 
agree on that, and it's amazing. Uh, I mentioned earlier that people go and help play test and, and help provide feedback on the rules, but as Todd said, he and I know several other people have jumped in and provided just because they wanted to. They've created new artwork for games free of charge just as a, a friendly aspect of the contest. Um, I know there's a few other people who have actually paid artists to create uh, artwork for the games, mm-hmm. and if, you, if you'd like to do that, that's fine, but I just want to emphasize there's no requirement for anything like that. Um, artwork, as Todd said, I, I think it provides a little bit of an edge because people will look at um, you know, one of Todd's games, for example, and think, my gosh, that's beautiful, I want to play that. Um, whereas my game, which is going to be stick figures, <laughs> might not draw the same attention. Right. Um, well, that's another uh, thing that's improved over the years is now we have game-icons.net, which has over a thousand, I think there are about 1,200 icons now that are um, Creative Commons free to use. So suddenly, you know, uh, last year Colony 9, I think, used a bunch of those icons. Um, and so there are, there are resources, the... Uh, Library of Congress has opened up their archives that you can get photos from that as well, and you can run through a couple of filters in Picasa and, you know, make artwork out of it. So if you're looking for artwork too, post on the boards the main uh, forum thread, and we can guide you to places where you can get icons and things so you don't have to do all this from scratch and don't have to worry about the stick figure aspect. Although I must say Chris's uh, daughter's stick figures, I think, should be in the game. Um, there's a few of them that a number of us have, have really liked. Yeah, I, I've, I've posted a few pictures just for fun in my game. That uh, My game is a monster game, and my daughter has drawn a few monsters with her crayon. She's, she's five years old and has just enjoyed you know, spending time with me and, and playing this game. So she's just drawn little doodles of the monsters, and you know, I know it's silly to post them in that thread, but you know, just proud daddy, I guess. <laughs> I've shared those, and, and I think some people have liked them. They're, they're kind of fun to look at. Yeah, that is fun. That is definitely yeah, that is fun. fun. That is definitely I know there's like one game, like one game. It wasn't a solitaire game, but it, the, the first version that came across was drawing with colored pencils, and I thought it was so nice that we was really excited about it. Later on, somebody said to improve the graphics, and so much of the charm away. Now, last year, there was a game entered... And I've forgotten the name of the designer. I can't believe it, but uh, it was Dungeon Constructor Kurt, uh, Dungeon Constructor Kit Cursed. And I think the designer had her daughter create that the artwork for that game. I think the daughter was about eight years old. She yeah. mentioned. Yeah. And it's it's just charming. It, it you know I think it fits the game perfectly. The artwork is fun. Um, so. You know, it, it ranges the spectrum from professional graphic designers like Todd to people letting their kids uh, draw the artwork in games, and it all works. You, know, you, you can find what works for your game um, and, and just be creative. People, people are having fun with it. Uh-huh. I think it's the main thing about the contest is have fun. I mean, in the end, it's not like you, you, you end, take home like a, you a giant money bag uh, you, you take Price home a giant money market. bag of geek gold. <laughs> <laughs> for anyone, for anyone listening who doesn't there follow are, board game are, geek, uh, there are, there are. yeah, geek gold is a c- currency of sorts on board game geek that you can use to buy avatars for your for yourself or little micro badges that decorate your avatar. 
so they're they're of no real value, but they make they make being on Board Game Geek a little bit more fun. So that's essentially what the prize of the contest is: is just lots of geek gold to go buy micro badges with. Yeah, and everybody who yeah, enters everybody gets a enters coveted micro badge for participation. Yeah, we've got some. All of the micro badges. It's an exclusive micro badge that you can't buy. You have to be in the contest to uh, either design a game or um, vote in the contest, and you get a participation micro badge. It's not available to purchase after it's done, so very exclusive. And each one of them has been designed by a participant in the contest. Uh-huh. And then uh, I've had a, one of BGG's micro badge developers help polish it up a little just so it looks sharp. But uh, So that, that's a participation prize that everybody gets regardless of whether you win or not. Okay, neat. Um, so, so jump back to the contest. What information should I include in my entry? Well, I think you already covered that, well, didn't you? Uh, a, title, a title, description, description some flavor text, some mm-hmm. pictures, text, right? Yeah, it's it's the the requirements are very minimum. There's not a lot you have to provide at, at first, but what generally happens is that people start providing more and more in their entry thread, um, longer descriptions, bigger descriptions mm-hmm. of the rules, and the entry thread will go grow as people comment on it and ask questions. So. It, they tend to grow organically, but the the bare requirements to enter the contest are pretty pretty simple. One thing it's you do not need to do is have your game listed in BGG's database. database. In fact, I encourage people not to do that. Uh, you know, as part of the slightly uh, bending the rules uh, for PNPs, where we're kind of allowed to post games. But um, you know, when your game is solid and finished, you can post it in the database, but it's not a requirement beforehand. Okay, that's right. So you don't need to be uh, an official game in the BGG database. Yeah. No. And many games don't make it. Though, I'll, I'll say that the games that do get added to BGG, it, it becomes much easier to find all the, the files and everything you need to print them out. Yep. And Chris actually does a master list every year after the contest of all the games. Um, so you can go back and through to click through that and find, you know, index and find them if you're wanting to play them. And then we have actually have an active... Uh, Geekless form thread every month of uh, the PNP players, and if you go back through those, uh, Kai runs that. Um, you can find a lot of links to the solo games and the finished artwork, and you know decks have been printed to Printer Studio and finished great copies of uh, a lot of the top, I'd say top five or six games in the contest every year. There's um. I would say about 75% of the games that are entered uh, eventually get a BGG entry into the database. Um, maybe even a little less than that. Some designers decide you know, the game still needs some work or, or it just gets abandoned after the contest is done. So, But the games that are complete, um, you know, basically I encourage people to follow BGG's rules about when a print-and-play game can be added to the database. Uh, they have their own set of rules for print-and-play games. They don't want early phase development. They don't want abandoned projects. So once you're once you feel that your game is complete, then I encourage people to add the games. As, as Todd said, when the contest is done, that thread will get buried in the forums. It'll be harder to find the games that are entered. So when your when your game is done, 
I'd encourage people to add it to the database. Mm-hmm. There's also a family on BoardGameGeek, uh, and a family is just an organization of games by, you know, a, a theme or, or a, uh, you know, a series of games. So there's a family of games for the Solitaire Print and Play contest, and that is a great way to find every game that's been entered into the database that has a game from that contest in it. Any of the contests are in there. Okay. Um, so, so one thing here, as anybody listening to this probably knows, we're having an issue with feedback. How about for the contest? How do you deal with feedback? Is, and what I mean is, if I enter a game in there, is it? I guess it depends on the individual, but is it hard to deal with the feedback? How do you react to feedback you get? It sounds like generally you're going to have constructive feedback and not a lot of hate mail. Is it ever an issue dealing with feedback? I don't think anybody's ever negative. Okay. I've seen comments from people saying they don't like a game, but I, I don't think that's especially negative. I've, I've never yeah. seen trolling comments or especially negative comments. People are far more likely to say, this mechanic could be improved a little bit, or I like what you've done here, but maybe this can be changed. The feedback tends to be very constructive that I've seen. I would say a few things that make feedback easier. Uh, when you're writing your rules, put a version number so that everybody can be on the same page about which version of the game is which when we're playing it. Um, be active in your forum thread and do updates. Uh, if someone is nice enough to provide feedback to you, answer that feedback. Uh, one nice thing in the two-player contest this year was that uh, Weston, one of the enters, uh, he did the beneficiary game. He actually played nearly every game and offered some criticism. Uh, David of Skirmish Tactics at least rated every game. Um, so one nice thing is if somebody you know, feedbacks your game, do the same thing for them. And that just feeds upon itself, and we get more and more, uh, you know, better, better information, and stronger games overall. Okay. How do you how do you know if you get feedback? What what to use and what to ignore? I mean, and maybe it's something to do with your design philosophy or something. But how, how what kind of advice can you give for that? Well, uh, f- from being a former architect and a graphic designer, feedback is always tough because, um, especially if it if it's not, I mean, negative in terms of mean, but if it's something like, hey, this isn't working, you know, you tend to take that personally, and this is your game, your investment in it, and just don't take it personally. There, people are trying to help. Uh, no ideas are set in stone. Nothing is solid. Everything is fluid. And oftentimes the negative feedback you get is actually going to make your game a lot stronger in the end. Um, so, yeah, nobody's attacking anybody here. And uh, just, you know, take it for what it's worth. But also the other side of that is that if somebody offers you feedback, you know, and it just it doesn't meet with your idea of the game, then, you know, be polite, say thank you, and just stick with your idea. If you feel strongly about what you're working on, you know, you're going to stick with that. If your game is a space game and it involves, you know, 100 cards and it just really that is, it has to be that, and somebody comes along and says, well, you know, this would be a great game if it was uh, Forest Rangers and, you know, if it used just 54 cards. Um, if you feel strongly about your design, you know, feel strongly about it. Yeah. And, you know, to, to add to that also, I think if somebody is giving you feedback and maybe if you're getting it from more than one person, even if you're thinking... 
you know, I feel strongly about this. You might want to step back and ask yourself, you know, what am I actually trying to accomplish by by this specific goal? Uh-huh. And are there suggestions really, really breaking that? Because I found, you know, I do software design, and I found that sometimes we're working in a program, and the application designers or t- the, the programmers are saying, you know, we can't do what you're asking, and and we need to do something different. And, and we're telling them we really need this. this is what we want. And I say, well, let's step back. Let's ask ourselves, what was the point of having this piece of code? It's trying to make the user's life easier in a certain way, and then are there other ways to accomplish that? So, you know, even if you don't necessarily agree with all the feedback you get, you might want to step back and think about it for a minute. Uh-huh. Try and think about it objectively, which can be really hard to do. Uh-huh. Uh, outside of the um, contest, so, I do... Uh, so... Go on, sorry. Uh, on, on the subject, on, of, on, on the feedback, I was just going to say, outside of the contest, I do game development for White Dog Games. And, you know, part of that job is providing tough feedback when it's needed and saying, you know, here's where the game is strong and here's where it needs improvement because I always figure they would rather hear it from me than, you know, hear it from people who bought the game later and are angry about it and maybe want their money back or something. Mm-hmm. Um, or, or would give the game a bad review later. So, I, 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 I apologize for that. <laughs> um, so, I I will provide tough feedback, and sometimes it's not what the designer is looking for. You know, a, a lot of times the feedback is incorporated into the game, but as a play tester and as a feedback you know, giver. Um, you know, I'm, I'm also used to people saying, no, this isn't, I think what you're missing here is the point of the game on this, or, or um, you know, I, that's not the direction I want to take the game. So the feedback for me oftentimes is a discussion with the designer where, you know, we go back and forth on ideas and maybe I refine my feedback or I, I get a better understanding of what they're trying to do and so I, I, I change it completely. But... And I've seen that on the contest threads as well, where, as Todd said, sometimes someone might look at the game and say, this would work better as a Forest Ranger game, and they say, no, here's what I'm trying to do, here's the reason it's Space Rangers. And then, you know, as Todd said, there's no negativity, there's there's not fighting. The, the feedback has been very positive in general, so whether you're giving feedback or getting it, I, I would make an effort to take it as such. Very positive experience. And I'd also say one of the things that we have so many different types of solitaire games out there, so, you know, a lot of times the war games are off kind of in their own part of BGG, and the traditional deck of cards gamers are off in their part of BGG. Uh, This is the one place where you have an audience that if you're designing a game of particular style, you know, you're going to find people who are interested in playing it, uh, which can only make things stronger in the end. You know, we have deck tech games, we have traditional games, we got war games, we have just standard card games, we have Euros, we have Ameritrash games, we have even solitaire miniatures, we have dexterity games. It's a huge, wide open, you know, audience. So don't don't feel that your game is gonna get, you know, look at that if it's one of the sort of um, more segregated, I suppose, uh, mechanic markets. Um, Have there been a dexterity games in the contest before? The contest before? There have been a few. Um, we had a, a game called Nimble's the Spell Thief, 
mm-hmm. I think it was mm-hmm. the second year of the contest, which was a flicking game, and kind of had some ingenious mechanics for having obstacles on the board that you were trying to flick around. Um, that you know, without a second player there, you had to take care of those obstacles yourself. But once they were set up on the board, it was you had to flick around them. So it, it was very clever. So there has been a few. I think dexterity is probably a hard one for solitaire, but people are yeah. very creative too. Uh-huh. And Nate, Nate Kurthusha Barbarian Prince style uh, paragraph game. We had a, we've had a couple of those over the years. I'm working on one for this year's contest as well with some other aspects to it. Um, um, so in, in term, let's talk about design in a, a game, I guess, in general. And You know, I came up with the categories and have no idea if any of this stuff makes sense or not, but we'll see. Um, so what are the stages of designing a game? I mean, I guess the very first thing is coming up with an idea. What happens after that? What happens after that? Well, I can uh, address my process. Um, For me, the idea and the artwork work hand in hand. That doesn't always occur for everybody. Uh, I think in general, solitaire games are a little harder to design because you don't have the interaction between players to play off of one another. So you are trying to come up with what is that set of AI mechanics that will act as the other player. You know, whether it's dice rolling or card shuffling or a bunch of little aggregate moves like I do, um, you know, you sort of build that up over time. One of the great things about solitaire games is that you can play test yourself. You don't need, again, other people. So it's a little easier to do that kind of formatting of the idea that you start to develop the mechanics. Um, I also read everybody's posts every year, uh, every one of their um, game form threads, because somebody might have an interesting idea that uh, would make me think that, oh, well, there's something I can, you know, use for this. Again, nobody's, uh, Daniel Solis is famous for saying nobody's, um, you know, nobody's ideas are locked away, solid. Everything's been done before. Um, so the more you're posting, and that's the thing, post early to your thread, talk about your process, because everybody there is, is there to help, and uh, they may have a solution. Uh, there's a lot of people actually really strong in math and probability. I've had people write little JavaScripts that run through a thousand uh, plays of uh, one of my games, and then I, you know, I can go back and say, okay, so just this number, this number, this number, and then it will run through another thousand games in you know, in 30 seconds. And uh, you can only benefit from other people helping you out. That is neat. That is neat. As, as Todd said, sometimes you get inspired by other ideas. Um, my game this year I was inspired as, for a project I was working on for White Dog Games, a Herman Lutman game called Spoiled Victory, which I think, Albert, you reviewed a little bit ago. Mm-hmm, yeah, As I was developing that, I kept having a thought of, you know, this works really well with the Dunkirk World War II theme, but you can use these mechanics in a zombie game as well, and that, you know, I started thinking more about that, and, you know, sometimes inspiration strikes you from, from looking at another designer's work and thinking... Um, you know, how, how could I use some of these similar mechanics in my game? Um, and I think we see a lot of that year to year in the contest. Yeah, I'd say just about anything. Yeah, I'd say just about anything. What's a zombie game? What's a zombie game? <laughs> yes, it's hard to think of a, a mechanic that doesn't work with zombies, right? <laughs> um, 
Um, so I've always actually wanted to design a zombie game. Design a zombie so, game. But design it at the level of the blood cells, that it's like a zombie virus. It's not mm-hmm. about zombies shambling around and you shotgun and attacking them. It's it's uh, happens all within the biology of a uh, of a body. So I might do that one year for a solitaire game. Oh. I'm having trouble hearing the audio sometimes. I'm having trouble hearing the audio sometimes. I don't know if it's just me or. Yeah, fade out the towards yeah, the end. Yeah, fade out the end. I'm hearing both yeah. of you, okay? Um, did, was there anything um, else about the, the stages did, of game design? Was there design? anything else about the, uh, the stages of so game first, design? First, I guess, you want to come up uh, with your idea. So you first, want to I guess, you want to Todd, you're talking idea, about the, the process a little bit, and I was wondering, the, the do you, are you wondering, coming up with a game you, and kind of balancing out a little bit and then adding more complexity, balancing out and adding more complexity? Is that something you do? No, I always start out complex and simplify. It's always best to simplify. In fact, I'm working kind of an alternate idea right now for a game about six sons of a sultan and a tea merchant trying to sell each of them a different type of tea. And right now I have a very complex victory point structure and a proportional mechanic for how you pay for, for the costs that then people the the costs that then and right now it's just too points. convoluted and right so now it's just too for me it's going to be parsing so it down and for me it's going to be parsing it down and simpler. pulling it you know, um, making it simpler some designers add complexity um, sometimes some add complexity. you start sometimes simply get complex and you go you back to simple again complex and you go back to simple again um, which actually kind of the mechanic I also sort of like the idea generation you know the idea generation um, I find a lot of my games the best my ones I actually just circle, circle, circle around a number. Circle around a number. Like the number three. Like the number three. And so there's and always so there's you have always, three cards in your hand, and your points are either one, two, or three victory points. You know, there are three characters, there's three of this, three of that, and that kind of ties everything together and makes some choices for you. choices for you. And then you can play around with the little things within that scheme. Must we got um must we got um I don't know if Chris wants to jump in. I don't know if Chris wants to jump in. Yeah, I um I I feel that complexity when you're dealing with the questions of should this rule be, you know, a simple or a complex victory point system, for example, or a, a battle mechanic, a war game perhaps, I think you you need to consider who your audience is and how it serves the goal of the gameplay. I mean, the whole time I'm looking at a game design, I'm thinking, what is this game trying to achieve, and how does this mechanic suit that goal? Um, so if it makes sense for the game, then complex is fine, especially in terms of the contest. There's no, there's no rule limits on how complex or easy a game has to be. But um, for, for game design, for me, especially when I'm developing a game, I if a game is complex, that's fine as long as it's serving a function within within the game. Complex for complexity's sake, I don't think players have a lot of patience for that. No, and there's also some artificial, no, there's also some artificial, artificial restraints that can help you when you're designing. You know, a lot of the games we design 54 cards because... That's what a deck you can get printed to Printer Studio or Arts Cow, and that sort of takes away one decision, you know. And so you're oh, 60 cards, 61 cards, just you know, stick with 54. With dice, d6s are good to stick with. Know the difference between, you know, 2d6, 3d6, and a d20. 
how the proportions work, you know, and those kind of having those artificial restraints often can be even more creative because you don't have to worry about certain things. You know, that 2D6, there's a curve that sevens are going to be rolled more than twos or twelves versus rolling, you know, a single die or rolling a 12-sided die. And that can link in with your game and help you in making decisions. So if you're, you know, doing events in a game and you want to have certain events come up more than others, you know, 2D6 versus a 1D12. So adding those artificial constraints can often help you. Okay. Are, are there any things you want to avoid even game design? Um, I think you want to avoid uh, the rules. If your rules are 20 or 30 pages, it's going to be a tough sell unless there's really it needs to be that. Um, these days, games are getting simpler. We don't see in war games the kind of you know battle tables we used to see in combat tables. Um, a lot of it, you know, as being a game designer, is playing other people's games. Rainer Nisha aside, who says he never plays anybody else's games, everything he comes up with is his own. But I think for the rest of us, the more games you play, the more you're going to see what's out there, and the more things you can borrow from and click, you know, click together. Um, so, uh, and also staying away from, you know, uh, Chris had mentioned a little bit about um, tiles and things. Hex tiles have a lot of interesting ideas in terms of how you can move on a board, but if you have a square grid and you shift the grid half a square, you can actually get that same effect, and somebody may be more likely to able to print your game up and play it if they're cutting out squares versus hexes. If you're cutting out, you know, 40 pages of cards versus nine pages of cards, um, you know, laying cards nine up on a page rather than eight up on a page, you want to make these things a little easier. And also, it's easier for your own generation. If every time I do a new iteration of my game, I have to cut out 100 hexes, I'm not going to really want to play my game either. <laughs> if I can cut out squares and quickly, you know, change things, you know, the the idea that people writing on note cards with magic marker, that's the best way to do prototyping. Um, you want to make, don't make it so complex in the beginning that it's going to take forever for you to even print it up and try to play test it. We want it to be in there and quick, get a lot of iterations. The more iterations, the better. Okay. Chris, do you have any uh, game design pitfalls you want to mention? Yeah, game design games. You want to mention? Um, I, I do a lot of print and play just for enjoyment, you know, outside of the, the contest. Sometimes my wife has accused me of enjoying making print-and-play games more than playing them, uh, just because I really enjoy that that building process. But like Todd said, if I see a print-and-play game that says, okay, you need to cut out 15 sheets of hexes, that's really, that's a lot of work to do. Um, And without being really sure that I'm going to love the game, I'm, I'm probably not going to be willing to print that and make it. Um, so, and especially for something like the contest, where you might be going through several iterations of a game as you get feedback and make changes, um, having the game be something that people can assemble without, you know, too much effort, I think is pretty important, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Or, okay. or a reasonable okay. amount of effort. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, one of my other questions you kind of one of my other questions you kind of already answered. Yeah, one one of the things I want to ask about or talk about you already answered, which is when you're building your prototype and dealing with iterations, you know it can be a hassle to do a lot of uh, a lot of components, which is everything we've been saying. 
So other than having a few components, how else can you deal with it? I mean, what if you really do need 15 pages of hexes for some reason? What what are some ways to to deal with that? Well, as I said, there's all there's ways to do hexes. If you have a square grid and you shift it so the grid is the squares are half um, a space off of the previous one, that actually simulates a hex grid very easily. Um, if you have a closet full of games, then you got a closet full of prototyping bits. You know, pull your meeples out of Carcassonne. If you're designing a train game and you got uh, ticket to ride, pull out those bits. Um, if you can, there's a lot of games. Um, Six Nymphed is a great deck of cards. It's 104 numbered cards, and if you're doing some sort of game that needs a number of cards, then you have that built in. And so, you know, a lot of games I actually buy, I buy because I can then scavenge the parts. I'll put them back afterwards, but mm-hmm. I could use pre-made bits to make my prototyping easier. Uh, a lot of people who are designers on BGG and Solo Contest and others actually are. Uh, Java programmers and you know coders, and a lot of times they'll be, uh, you know, they'll write little JavaScripts and things to um, test out things about their games. I know Nate Kurth does all of his graphics in PowerPoint, so you don't need any fancy software. You know, Picasso's free out there. Uh, a lot of people have PowerPoint and are comfortable with it, um, so prototyping is great for that. Um, artwork-wise, as I said, there is a whole host of free artwork out there. Uh, you can use, I would not say copyrighted artwork. Um, you may use that privately for yourself for prototyping, but if you're going to show stuff off to people, uh, try to find Creative Commons licensed or uh, a lot of the free Library of Congress and other sites uh, out there. Um, when you do a Google search, can you can you specify the license? Yes. In fact, if you do a uh, Google search, you can specify clip art. You can specify free. Um, a lot of that free stuff does take you to paid sites or sites that the stuff is copyrighted. So you just want to kind of pay attention to what's how the site sort of feels. Um, but uh, many museums around the world now are also licensing their work for free. Um, Google, you can find a lot of artwork. If you find books that are before like 1920 or so, that's all mostly in public domain. Um so you can find old artwork. I actually have a game in the micro competition right now that I'm using artwork from uh, Tales of Suspense, an Edgar Allan Poe uh, book. The Harry Clark did illustrations, and they're in the public domain. Uh, Wikipedia is a great source, actually, for that because all artwork on Wikipedia is Creative Commons or free or copyright-free licensed. And you can get into wiki images, um, find an artist you like, and you're able to pull images out of that that you're able to use. And at the bottom, they'll specify... This is free because it's out of public domain. This version of this is free because it's a copy of a copy of something. Um, so that information, Wikipedia is a good source for, for finding things. Um, okay, so there's a lot of places. I didn't, I didn't realize there's so many ways to get free art. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, children's books are great. Uh, you know, books from the 1800s, early 1900s. There's a lot of, you know, look up Hans Christian Andersen, look up Grimm's fairy tales. Um, look up early Jack London's uh, books. I think are all public domain by now, uh, so you can pull some artwork out of those. I actually found uh, there was a Norwegian museum that I found all sorts of great Norwegian Viking illustrations that I did for a retheme of Pico um, that are all public domain. So, 
as you start to find these sources, you'll find other sources, and they'll lead you to other sources, and it's sort of, you know, we'll build. I know there's, there's a, I think it's Dover publishes a lot of uh, books that are just clip art and art. A lot of it, I think, is really old stuff. Yes. Um, yeah, Dover, uh, supposedly it all is public domain. It isn't always that way. So you do have to pay a little attention to what you're doing, but for the most part, I'd say 85%, speaking as a graphic designer, uh, Dover, yeah, you can find free stuff. And again, I want to plug game-icons.net. Um, all the stuff there is Creative Commons free. There are some icons that people want you to just credit them in the rules that you bought the icons from there, but game-icons.net has over 1,200 uh, icons, and they're all actually designed the same way. So there's fantasy ones, there's science fiction ones, there's wargaming ones, and your icons are going to match from icon to icon. Okay. I've written down the URL, so hopefully I'll remember to, to include it when I publish the podcast. Chris, I'm sorry, I've had you mute, but... Chris, I'm sorry, I've had you mute, but... Oh, that, that's all right. Um, a minute ago you asked about what to do if your game was, uh, you know, required a, a large number of components or, or some difficult components. And I did want to touch on that a little bit, just that uh, in, in the contest, I realized early on uh, that some games were huge. Um, uh, for example, last year we had a, a very, very large game, um, the, the, the Manhunt. Um, it, it was a science fiction game, beautiful artwork, but huge. And I, I could see it wasn't getting a lot of feedback. And, you know, the hundreds of cards. The board, I think, was nine, eight and a half by 11 pages long. Uh, so, you know, very, very, very big game. Um, so one of the things we did early on in the contest is create a special category for small games and large games. And as Todd mentioned earlier, we've had a little bit of trouble uh, figuring out how exactly to define those because everyone's going to have a different definition of small and large but the goal of that was to make sure that games that fall outside of the spectrum where lots of people can play them and lots of people are going to vote for them you know, can still be recognized as this is a great game. Um, just It falls outside of maybe the, pub, uh, the, the mass appeal because it's difficult to make. So it was something I wanted to address in the contest. So those were created, you know, those, those categories were created specifically for that reason. Can a person use Vassal, or do they have to actually... Nobody has to actually print out the game. Could I, in theory, make a gigantic monster game, take six months to play, and do it all in Vassal and submit it that way? Um, Vassal is allowed in the contest, for sure, and a lot of people have used it in the past. Um, it is not... Um, you can't just release on Vassal. It is a print-and-play contest, so you need to release components, but a lot of people have released Vassal... With with their components, um, last the the past three years, uh, one of our participants, Chad Nasta, has made Vassal modules for a large amount of people. He's really jumped in and helped a bunch of people out. Um, I know this year he just had uh, he and his wife had a baby, so I'm not sure he's going to be able to participate as much as he did in the past. Um, but if he can make a Vassal module for you, or someone else can, or you want to do it yourself, that's more than welcome in the contest yeah. yeah okay but you still have to provide okay, files. you still have to provide files and speaking of that what what format are the files is it PDF is the requirement or anything like that 
anything like that? Uh, P PDF is what most people do. There's there's not a specific requirement. Uh, there have been games submitted in Word document format. I like PDF just because everyone can open it for free. Um, there's no you don't have to own Microsoft Word or something, but I haven't ever made a requirement for it, but it's a recommendation in the contest that every, everything be in PDF format. Yeah, another reputation that yeah, a lot of people ask for a lot of people. Low, low uh, ink, black and white versions of the games, or grayscale versions, um, especially the games that are heavy in color. Uh, the grayscale version will uh, allow you to print it up quickly and not spend a lot of ink time or money. Uh, a lot of times that helps with blind, or excuse me, colorblind players. Uh, to make it easier for them to print the game up. Uh, and as we get more sophisticated every year, we're cr cropping up those things too. Now we have colorblind, online colorblind tools that people are using to make sure their games can be played by everybody, people learning how to match now color and icons. So I would say the one thing to do for your, technically is, you know, make your game as embraceive as everybody as possible. Um, there's also a lot of people every year ask about, how do I post this game? Uh, Dropbox is out there. Uh, Google allows you to do, um, you know, there's Google Drive. Uh, a bunch of us have personal servers. Um, so I think Dropbox is kind of becoming the sort of standard way to do this. Um, make sure that your permissions are set, that people can actually download your game, and it's not private uh, permission protection. Um, but as Chris said, yeah, PDFs are the best way, I think, to do it. Number two would be uh, Word documents to some degree, but um, there are actually all kinds of free PDF uh, drivers out there. Macs automatically make PDFs out of any file. Uh, on the PC side, you can get Qt PDF Maker. There's a couple of different ones that will um, act as a virtual printer and print to a PDF format. Um, so, And I would say the last thing is that know that uh, there are fewer BGGers in Europe than America. We kind of, I think we have a stronger uh, audience terms of players, but make sure your games can be printed on both letter-sized paper and on A4 European-sized paper, which is going to help. How do you do um, that? Is, do you like a, do the lowest common denominator and print for the smaller of the two? Well, as, as long as you stay within a half-inch margin, so your livable space is 7.5 by 10 inches, as long as you kind of keep within that margin, which you can set in Word, you can set in design, you can set other things, that's going to print on both letter and on A4 without losing anything off the edge of the page. Okay. Um, anything else from you, Chris? Chris? Uh, no, I'm, I've just been enjoying this contest and seeing the games come in. I'm very excited to see Todd's game complete. I'm very excited to see my game get complete. <laughs> so, But the entries that have come in this year um, have just been phenomenal. It's just strong game after strong game. Um, last year, I think I was able to call the winner pretty early on in the contests. Yeah, um, yeah. It, it, it's sometimes easy to pick out, you know, which games are getting the most attention, which games are the strongest early on. This year, I don't, I don't know that I can call a winner at this point. And granted, it's early. We'll probably have another 20 to 30 entries I'm estimating by the by the deadline um, but but right now there's there's a lot of strong games so it's it's exciting there there's there's a lot to play and have fun with okay uh, you know I had another thought about the um, we've been talking about how to make the, the game easy to print and all that 
there's one more thing that I found whenever I'm making a or printing out a game. If you have cards, like a sheet of nine cards, if you put spaces between each card, it becomes a real hassle to print because you end up having to cut twice as much. Right. And it's, it's much nicer if all the cards are right up against each other. Yep. I think it's a little harder to put it together, especially if you're not a pro at this already, but it, it makes such a difference. Well, there's also, um, you know, we now there are Inkscape templates, there are PowerPoint templates. Um, so if you're trying to put that artwork together, ask in your form thread, and somebody's going to say, oh, using, well, you can use Inkscape, you can go here and it does this, go and get this template over here. So again, there's a lot of sharing going on. Somebody's already reinvented the wheel before you, and if you ask, you can most likely get an answer that makes your life a little easier to for the development. Okay. Is the uh, the Print and Play Guild also a good resource? Oh, Chris is talking. Hang on. He's talking. Hang on. Oh, I, I'm sorry. I just said uh, a- after this uh, interview is done, perhaps Todd and I can post some of those common links onto the forum thread so that people can find these tools and, uh, you know, things that people have already done easily. And yes, the PMP Guild is yes, a good, the PMP Guild is a good good source as well. But the monthly uh, print and play uh, print and play geek list. Um, that's where a lot of us um, that's where a lot of us are developing new techniques and uh, talking one another about things going on. You know, uh, you know, uh, one great thing to know is that Walgreens you can print Walgreens full color JPEGs up as other photo printer and there are other photo printer really you know high quality if you want really you know high quality and without a lot of and without a lot of and waste of there. Ink and Printer Studio and Printer Studio is a great resource for us. They come now. Cards. They come it's like now. ten days turnaround it's like time. Ten days turnaround time. Um, so once your game gets, um, so once your game gets solid, you know, good solid, you feel it's a good solid you feel version. It's a good solid version. You can go that route to print up nice cards. Print up nice cards. I know a lot of people have uh, magic cards around. Magic they cards around that they uh, want that they don't use anymore. They don't use anymore. Those are good card backs. Those are good card backs. It's very easy. It's very easy to throw in single sided piece of paper. Single sided piece of paper in a card sleeve. Mix and match. And mix and match, interchange those as you need to as you're developing your game. Um, yeah, I recently went to the the local dollar store. Yeah, I recently went to the, the local dollar store to buy some bunch of cards. That sort of that's actually probably a really good place. That's actually probably a really good place to find lots of things. Lots of little components. Lots of little. Oh yeah, and find army men there. Find army men there, and different miniature figures. Find dice pretty well. Find dice pretty well. Poker chips are easy to get there. Poker chips are easy to get there. Can you mentioned I will sometimes a, go to the thrift store. Is this a, a, like, what game? Is I think my, like, Chris is saying something. Chris is saying something. In addition to the dollar store, I sometimes will go to the thrift store and buy um, you know, a game that has a lot of dice in it or has a lot of cubes. If I see an old version of Risk that has the wooden cubes, you know, for a dollar or two, I'll buy that. And then you've got a huge supply to use for print-and-play games or yeah. prototyping. So. Yeah. Um, you know, there's lots of sources out there to get components for cheap. You just have to hunt around a little yeah. sometimes. Yeah. Yahtzee Jr. Yahtzee is highly Jr. is highly because those are um, D6s that are uh, sunk in, so you can actually pull out the la- labels and stick labels in to make quick dice. Um, so, yeah, Yahtzee Jr. is a good friend. Uh, bead stores are great to go to. You can get uh, square beads and, you know, different colors, things there as well. Uh, hardware store, of course. Uh, we've gone, you know, we've bought ceramic hexes for hex tiles. Um, you can get actually uh, shelf paper there that looks like the back of a professional game board. Um, there's birch plywood that comes in eighth-inch sheets that you make game boards out of. So a lot of a lot of resources. 
I need okay. I haven't tried making an abort in a long time. I find so you were asking something about the PNP um, uh, geek list? Mm-hmm. Is that a, it's a geek list for for games you're making, building, or is it games people are designing, or what? The, it's the games people are making. It's it's the build. It's the building of the games, and usually it's photos show the way the game looks. And somebody may have redesigned something, and then you can get the files from somebody there. Um, and there's a lot of back and forth about techniques. Uh, mm-hmm. Um, Manuel Ingeheld uh, has been using Fimo clay. He's been actually carving uh, figures out of birch, and then he's gone and casts them in Fimo clay as a negative mold and then fills that mold with other Fimo or plaster to make multiple copies of figures. Uh, there's a lot of debate about, you know, if I'm using Mod Podge to seal the tops of cards or if I'm using a spray polyurethane. So it's really about the building side of the games. What are the techniques and the tricks to making uh, the build process go faster and more professional and you know, you know better? Gotcha. Okay, so I really I should check this out. I just tried using Sculpey last week to to build some little figures and mm. yeah, it looks like it's the first time I've done that. <laughs> yeah, Melody on the, Melody, uh, who's a user on uh, BGG, she does amazing Sculpey work. She is the queen of uh, definitely the queen of the Sculpey process. She did. Uh, she's done several of my games, redone them with uh, sculpties, and just been an incredible kinds of stuff that she does. I have to look her up because that'll help inspire me to keep. Yeah, trying. her her uh, her BGG username is Sunshiny. Okay. Um, there is one last thing here on the in the notes, which is how do you approach writing the rules? I bet both of you guys have been put. Uh, especially Chris, as we're working with White Doll Games. Um, you want to go first? Yeah, um, go ahead, Chris. Yeah, go ahead, Chris. Um, so I might look at it from a little more of a, a war game perspective where the rules are highly organized, numbered and sub-numbered uh, so that they can be indexed and table of contents easily, but I might be used to dealing with rule books that are a little bit longer uh, because they're war games, you know, in the eight to 20 page rule book, uh, which, which perhaps you don't see in, in earlier games or, or in Euro games as much. Um, I, I do think though, there's a few universals on rule books, having a, a summary up front that kind of describes how the game is played and how it is won can be very important so that the player knows, you know, right from the get go, if, if you start reading about components and you start reading about the map or the terrain, it, it's a lot harder to uh, um, it's a lot harder to um, understand exactly what the rules are trying to say. But if you have a summary up front that gives a, a little description of what the game is like and what the player is trying to do, and then you get into uh, here's all your pieces, here's what they do, um, you know, it gives the player a better frame of reference as they're reading the rest of the rules to understand how they fit in to that overall. Um, game summary that you provided earlier. I'd also say it's I'd handy, also to, say have it's handy to have an, an index at the back with if you have a lot of icons, just make a little glossary of what those icons do. Probably a one-page player aid. If you can get your boil all of your rules down to a single-page player aid, then you know you're strong. For me, I start out with how do you win the game? What do you need to play the game? How do you set the game up? how the game is played, and then again, how you win the game. 
and I kind of keep that format. Um, and again, I encourage people, you know, games that you like and you play well and you you took to them, a lot of that's reading the rule book. So go back and look at that rule book and see how they did what they did. Uh, diagrams, the more diagrams you can have something, the more, because we're visual learners, the more that you can see how something's played, the better. Um, so, yeah, I do a lot of diagrams. I always do a, a setup diagram. After I explain the way the game's set up, then I show a sample. Here's the way the game is supposed to look on the table. So you can sit there and go, okay, yes, I'm matching this up, I'm matching that up. Um, definitely grammar, you know, all that kind of stuff afterwards as well. I can't stress that enough. Uh, it drives me crazy, the die and dice and loose and lose uh, kinds of things. So read your rules. Have people who don't have anything to do with your game read your rules because they're going to find a lot of loopholes. Um, I know currently Jack Neal's having a problem that he plays so many 18xx games. He didn't, he didn't explain a lot of the terminology for 18xx games, and a lot of us who are reading his rules who don't play 18x games, we don't understand the rules. And it's not because the rules are badly written. It's just because there's a lot of topics that haven't yet been introduced to us because it's not our genre of game that we play. Okay. Uh, I'd suggest if somebody, if you go pick a game that you have that you like, that you found the rules really clear to understand, use that as an example maybe and try and, try and just copy it. That might even work. You know, um... I feel bad because I was supposed to have questions and answers here if anybody wants to ask questions. We now have three and a half viewers. Somebody keeps coming and going, it looks like. So, Todd, you had a a, 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 tweet, a Twitter... A tw- I can't Twitter feed. Yeah, I've got nobody... Can you nobody share that again for the two more listeners? Oh, yeah, you? it's uh, it's uh, at Lack River, L-A-C-K-R-I-V-E-R. That's my Twitter handle. Um, so, yeah, you can definitely uh, Twitter me questions. I've not receiver, and I've been following the feed over here. Um, but uh, if anybody wants to ask something, feel free to do it through Twitter as well. Uh, or my BGG forum thread, I can uh, call that up as well. I'm pretty well known on BGG for the forum, one of the longest, I guess, forum threads out there these days. Um, yeah. Next time, hopefully, the we'll work out the technical details yes. a little bit better. And also, once you have this posted on YouTube, I'll... Um, I'll look at the YouTube feed a couple times a day for a couple weeks, and if people post questions over there, I can answer things as well. Uh, Protected. And Chris is moving his mouth, and I think he's going to say, and always ask questions on the main 2014 solo game contest thread. Um, That's the great place to get answers. Just a great place to get answers. Either myself or a lot of the other users will jump in to help answer those. I'll meet you again. Let me see. Do I have anything else? I think I don't really have much else I want to cover. I have one person who said, hey, um, so you have a question? So we might actually have one question here (laughs) coming up. Because, uh... I lost it. There we go. <laughs> we'll see. I can't think of anything else major about the uh, contest. Um, other than encourage people, you know, uh, if you have a traditional game out there, if you have a war game, if you have a deck tech game, if you have a Euro game, Euro track, uh, you know, Ameritrash, um, what are you waiting for? Post it, and uh, you can only uh, make things stronger. 
Yeah, and you know, and maybe maybe you'll disagree with me. I don't know, but if if you've got an idea you've been throwing around for years but never have done anything with, and you're not even uh -huh. sure you could finish it, you might want to enter the contest because you're going to get a lot of feedback, suggestions, and it might right. help you get closer to to your goal. I, I do have an actual question here from uh, John White. How long has Chris ran the PNP contest? This is the fourth year for it. Uh, I think it's one of the longest running contests that's run every year. Um, there's a couple of different ones around the around the clock. There actually is a forum thread on BGG as well that's kind of a calendar of contests. Um, so now we have the two-player contest, the microgame contest. We've had before one page, all dice. Uh, we've had war game. We've had microgames. We've had in your pocket. Um, every once in a while we talk about doing a standing in line game, so it's a game you can play while you're waiting at the amusement park in line. Kind of thing. So there's a calendar on BGG as well for all those organization of things. Um, but yeah, Chris has run uh, run this for four years now. Some of the contests on Board Game Geek are very specific, and then my contest, the Solitaire contest, and Nate's two player contest, you know, have a much more broad scope and attract a lot of users. Uh, the, the very specific ones, like only dice or only only tiles. Uh, we'll have a narrower focus, so they'll get games, you know, in that genre or that theme, um, but you know, aren't aren't quite as as big as these other contests, just because we're so broad. You know, there's no limitation on what you can do to enter a game, other than the number of players. Uh huh. Uh huh. Um, okay. Um, I think we're ready to close. Um, we've been going here for about nine, oh, almost ninety minutes. Um, is there anything anybody else wants to add? Chris, is there anything you want to say? What's going on with White Dog? Is there anything at all you want to mention? Uh, I have one, one other question here. Um, can I enter the same half game again? <laughs> Sounds like he, he entered a game last year and didn't finish it, maybe? Yeah, Chris, you want to take that? Take that. Yeah, absolutely. So, for games that have been entered in uh, previous contests, and then they weren't finished for some reason or other. Um, you know, you withdrew the game. You can enter it again this year. That's not a problem at all. The only limitation is if if the game you know was entered into the contest and completed, then it can't be entered again. But I think we have a game this year that has been entered all four years of the contest. It's uh, Devil Dogs. Uh, it started out as a paragraph war game, untitled the first year of the contest, and it was withdrawn because the designer wasn't done. And I think every year he gets a little closer, but he's never uh, never completed it for the contest. So I'm, I'm hoping to see it this year, but ju I'm just using that as an example to show that games can be entered uh, as long as they weren't finished. If you had to drop out for some reason, uh, you're welcome to bring that game back. Do you need to drop off officially for that, or or how would that work? Or how would that work? So can you repeat that, Albert? Um, yeah. Would if I submitted a game last year, and I want to resubmit it this year, did I have to like drop off officially, or how do you how do you decide if it's an incomplete game or not? I guess I'm not sure. Sure. So some games drop out officially. The, the, the designer will say, I, I'm not going to finish in time for the deadline, which this year again is August 9th. Uh, other games, if 
I will send out emails as the deadline approaches and say, is your game ready to be entered? Uh-huh. And if August 10th or, or the deadline passes and the game has no components, there's nothing for anyone to print, um, there's no information about the game, it is automatically withdrawn. Okay. And some people reactivate their forum threads the following year um, because, again, no forum thread really ever dies in BGG. Um, so. Some should. Yeah. <laughs> um. Okay. So. So. Yeah. I think let let's go ahead and close up. I don't know that I have anything else. So, Chris, is there anything else you want to add, or anything you want to say about white dogs, or anything at all? White dogs, or anything at all. Um. I did. I did want to mention one other game I, I'm working on outside of the contest. I, I'm working with Herman Lutman on a new game he's designing. Um, it is a war game, a, a zombie-themed war game. He's, he's coming back to zombie theme after um, Dawn of the Zeds. So this is a, a, a new universe he's creating. So uh, I'm working with him on that. The game is called The Shades, and you know the game's in early stages of development, and we haven't found a publisher yet. Um, you know, we'll we'll look at that as the game is closer to being ready for submission. But my zombie game that I'm working on, uh, I had originally themed it as a, a vampire game set in New England, sort of a you know a, a retake on the vampire panics of the 1800s. Um, we have been talking a little bit about putting the games in the same universe, so my game might transition in and be. Uh, in this new Shades universe and move from a, zomb- or a vampire theme to a zombie theme, which I find really interesting to be working in the same universe as another designer. Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll see how that goes, and I'll post updates there, but um, that, that's one of the things I'm kind of excited about right now. Cool. That sounds, that sounds really neat. Uh, I look forward to, to hearing more about that. Um, how about you, Todd? Is there anything, or, yeah, anything you want to tell us about or mention? Uh, well, my entry this year, hopefully I'm going to finish it because it, it might have been off a little more than I could chew, but uh, it's going to be the final trilogy to my Shadows Upon Lassadar series. Uh, it's going to be a combination of a paragraph-driven game with localized um, point-to-point movement, war game maps, and then there will be a deck builder card elements that as you play the game, you're going to be adding cards to your deck sort of in a Pathfinder sort of way, and those will act as, uh, not exactly your life points, but they'll act as your sort of mana guide, and um, some of the things you pick up will later on be revealed to be, might be other things, so definitely poke around, but um, unlike the previous years where I've done each of the trilogies as a separate game, this this is a single trilogy together. You're going to be visiting three different cities in Lassadar, so it's going to be the trilogy of trilogies and the penultimate trilogy of the uh, of the series. Or I'll do this game about uh, six sons of the Sultan and they all like tea. So one or the other. <laughs> yep. Cool. Okay, well I guess we'll we'll sign off then. Thank you both for, for sure. talking with me about the, the contest and good luck and have fun. Thanks. Yeah. Been fun. I'm Chris Unmute. I'm Chris Unmute. And stop Well, that's the end of today's episode. If you'd like to contact me, you can find me as Fractaloon on BoardGameGeek or you can email me at OnePlayerAlbert at gmail.com. 
You can also post comments on the Podcast Geek List on BoardGameGeek or come visit the One Player Guild on BoardGameGeek for comments and discussion and whatnot. The intro music is copyright Angus and is protected under a Creative Commons license and can be found at gemendo.com. The show is published under Creative Commons non-commercial share-alike license. Thanks for listening.